I do want to take a moment and um, and and I should have. I mean, we can say this every week, but I tell you what, I was thinking about it this week. I'm so blessed, and I know uh, Eric and and you know we are so blessed by this church plant because man, everybody's got their hand on it. You know what I'm saying? Everybody, there's so many. There's so many pieces that are moving and doing things and taking part and taking ownership. And I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool to see this kind of come about because um, this church is not my church. It's not Eric's church. It's not Vanguard Presbyterian's church. This, this church is Christ's church. And we as Christ's people, I tell you, it's so cool to see Christ's people throwing in and getting their hands dirty and, and just all the different things. There's no way this church plant can, can do anything without all the different pieces in, in place. So um, I was thinking about this this past week, and I thought, man, we are, it's just such a blessing to see all of this. And now we have an accountant in the house. Did you all know that? We have an accountant in the house? I can't believe it. So uh, anyways, <laughs> not to put him on the spot, right? Just kidding. All right. But that is a gift. I mean, not a lot of accountants in the world. All right, so Mark chapter 8. So today we, we come to a, a tipping point in the gospel of, of Mark. Um, and we have been... We have been coming to this place really from chapter 1. So everything, if you think about the Gospel of Mark, most of the Gospel of Mark up to this point has been about, it's been about the question, who is this man? You see him, you see him doing miracles, you see his power, he's stealing the wind, he's causing bread to come out of nowhere. You're seeing what he's doing, but it's all in relationship to answering the question, yeah, but who is he? And so this is where everything kind of culminates in the Gospel of Mark. It's Mark chapter 8. Um, so this, after this, we're going to have, it's almost that continental divide, you know, everything's going this way, but then once you reach this, we're going in a completely different direction in the Gospel of Mark, and we'll see that as we go on. But uh, let's pray for the Holy Spirit to help us, um, and then we will open up the Scriptures. Holy Spirit, we come now and we pray, please, open up your Word to us. Or we know that without your Word, we are, we are blind men groping in the dark, but especially without the Holy Spirit, we are, uh, we are worse than blind men. We're dangerous in a bad way. So give us grace. Help us to see Christ. Please help us today. Lord, comfort your people. Open our eyes. Don't let us be like the disciples in the boat who had no eyes. Even though they had eyes, they couldn't see. Even though they had ears, they couldn't hear. Give us grace today, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so... Um, Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and we'll read through verse 30. So four verses. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about, about him. Which is interesting. We'll, we'll definitely look at that. But here's the thing. In verse 27, so if you're looking at what's going on here. So we just saw Christ. And remember last week, it was very significant because all the, the last, this story and the previous two, they all go together. We saw last week, whenever Christ steps off the boat, there's a blind man and Christ brings the blind man off to the side. And he heals the blind man's eyes partially. Remember, and the guy's looking around. He's like, well, I can't. I, yeah, I, I kind of see, but everybody looks like trees walking around. And so Christ puts his hands on him again and then fully restores him. And we looked at that and we're like, well, what's, what's going on with that? And we saw that that was a parable for the miracle of faith. And we're going to see that explicitly shown here today. So in verse 27, 
he leaves with the disciples from Bethsaida. And they go north, okay? So this is where Caesarea Philippi is. So if you look in your, in the back of your Bible or whatever, you look at the map, Caesarea Philippi is in the very northern extremity of Israel. You will not see Christ go this far north at any point in his wanderings or in his journeys. Here he is way up there. Um, but here's the thing about this place, Caesarea Philippi. Okay, first of all, Caesarea. What does that remind you of? Caesarea. Caesar, right? And there's a reason for that. So, so Herod Philip names this town after Caesar. And in the middle of this city, there's a shrine to Caesar where they offer emperor worship. They pinch the incense. They pinch the salt. They give it to Caesar. That's in the middle of the city. Also, what you have in this city, this city is famed for its beauty and its fertility, which I think is ironic because it seems like all of the cities that are really pretty, a lot of natural beauty, they're overrun with godlessness. Have you guys noticed this? Like Santa Fe, a glorious, beautiful city. You go up there and it's overrun with all kinds of weird sin and paganism and all kinds of false religions. Same thing with San Francisco. San Francisco is a glorious city, beautiful city. But then it's, I don't know what it is. Here's the other thing about this city, though. It, it had been a site of Baal worship. So this is, this is a, a, a spot, because remember, Baal worship... Was, was done, most of, most of uh, Baal worship was done in Israel, which was the northern part. So if he's way up there, that's where Jezebel comes from, kind of in that area. And so Baal worship was a very significant thing going on then. And then also, it's famous for its pan sanctuary. And so what this city is, is if you look at, a, if you look at pictures, if you, if you were to just type in a you know, Caesarea Philippi, plug it into a map or Google and they show you pictures, you'll see a cave there. And, and, and it's surrounded by this, this kind of rocky cliff, and there's a cave. And supposedly, so that's where um, the god Pan was worshipped. And that was considered to be the gate of Hades. Which, when you read the parallel passage, what do you have? This is the passage where Christ talks about how the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And he's saying this as they're looking at what was the gate of Hades, the place for, you know, pagans, the, the place, the realm of the dead, and it's this cave. But it's, a, it's, it's famous for this, this uh, Pan was, Pan was the, the, the half man, half goat god. Remember those pictures? Half, half man, half goat, right? So what am I saying, right? This is, there's no, it's not coincidental that the first time that Christ is going to be proclaimed as Christ, as Messiah, comes in the face of paganism and, and all kinds of, of, of Roman worship, uh, emperor worship, all these things. There's a reason for that, right? What's the reason for that? Well, ask ourselves. One of the things that Christ is going to do is he is going through his death, through his resurrection, through the power of the gospel, he is going to go and crush the Caesar worship, crush the Greek goddess and Greek gods and all these. How many, how many people are worshiping Caesar today? Nobody. Last time I checked, nobody's worshiping Caesar anymore, and nobody really gives any credence to the old ancient pagan system. I mean, nobody, you know, you might, especially in America, you might have pagans here and there, and I've met a lot of, you know, wannabe pagans on the college. They don't take it seriously, right? They're like, oh, I, I worship Athena. Well, why do you worship Athena? I don't know. I just kind of, I woke up one day, and I just kind of picked this. Nobody really takes that stuff seriously. Why is that? Because the gospel has, in a large effect, crippled it. And especially in, those, in, in these days, in, in talking about 400 uh, or 1,000 years ago, but 400 years later, in church history class, you guys have reached the part as far as the Celtic missionaries go. Remember that? The Celtic missionaries in Ireland, 
These guys were, when they were converted, they go back and they start going into the face, into the teeth of, of the, the, the worst of the worst when it comes to bar, barbarism, paganism, um, you know, the people that are, like, like today on Netflix and on Amazon Prime and all this, everyone's doing these shows about, about, these, uh, about these, these, these barbarians and these pagans, and they're ruthless. You know, they have their faces painted, and they're, 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 they're people you would never mess with. They're like 6'8 and built, you know, 350 pounds, and they, 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 they eat raw deer, you know, things like that. You're like, man, they, they, they carry around these big old sledge things. You're like, well, these, pa- these uh, Celtic Christians... They're like, we're not afraid of these guys. These guys, who are these guys? We're going to go right into the heart, right into the belly of the beast with the gospel, and we're going to see God move and convert people. And sure enough, guess what happened? God moved and started converting people. And so that's what is going on here. When, when Peter makes this confession, it's not, it's, you know, here, here's why I know that. You know how we can know that? Because Peter, who, who is it that gave Peter the understanding at that particular moment, about who Christ is. God did that. And we'll look at this in a minute, right? But it's not like Peter's just waiting for the right opportunity. God doesn't give it to him until they reach Caesarea Philippi. And then it's like, boom. Okay, now I start seeing this. But that's where they are, northern extremity. And now notice also, there's a very, kind of a, kind of a regular phrase that you see everywhere, in a sense. But it says, on the way. You see that in verse 27? Jesus went out, along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he questioned his disciples. So it's not like they're stationary necessarily. They're going somewhere. But here's the thing about that phrase, on the way. It's going to occur nine times between the chapters 8 and 12. So 8 through 12. So five chapters, you're going to see this phrase nine times. Why is that significant? What does on the way mean? Okay, John the Baptist in Mark chapter 1. What do you have, what do you have John the Baptist preaching? In Mark chapter 1, he's proclaiming the way of the Lord. Is that right? The way of the Lord. You have not seen the phrase the way of the Lord at all in previous chapters. But now you're, gonna, you're, about, to, you're, you're about to be overwhelmed with the phrase on the way. John the Baptist was preaching about the way of the Lord. Christ is on the way. Now he's on the way. On the way to what? And here's the thing about this, okay? On the way means humiliation. Does it not, right? For Christ, humiliation, suffering, death, the crucifix. That's what on the way means. And here's what it means for us. You know what this is telling us? Okay, Who is Mark writing this to? Roman Christians. Roman Christians who are where? In Rome, where there's emperor worship taking place. There's pagan worship taking place. They are being persecuted and hunted and, and, and every kind of... We've, we've talked about this in the early chapters. Every kind of torment that you can think of, it's taking place to these Roman Christians, right? They're in the same situation, in a sense, that the disciples are in, in Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by paganism, surrounded by Roman emperor worship, right? And what Christ is about to tell them is he's about to start preparing them and telling them, explaining them what it means to be on the way. And so on the way, here's what it's telling us. And here's the thing about Christianity in general. Christianity is not a speculative sideline religion. That's the beauty of Christianity. It's not an abstract kind of philosophical thing that you just like sit back in the easy chair or in your ivory tower and you just, try, you just philosophize all day about what the Bible says, right? The scriptures are practical. Christianity, that's why Paul, when Paul describes Christianity, he describes it as warfare, boxing, being a soldier, being an athlete, having your hands dirty, right? Getting into the fight. 
You can't just sit back on the sidelines when it comes to Christianity. You can't do that. That's not Christianity. There's, there are religions like that. You know, there are speculative, more mystical type of religions where you just kind of sit and go into an abstract drool for, for hours. I don't know. But here you don't have that in Christianity. Christianity is about imitating Christ, walking as he walked. And how did Christ walk? Well, he's walking towards his death. He's walking towards being humiliated, towards being crucified. And so what that means for us is when we're looking at Christianity, ask yourself this, are you traveling along the way? Or are you a sideline Christian? Right? Are you... On the way, are you, are you in the fight? Are you fighting against sin? Are you fighting against your flesh? Are you fighting against the world? Are you fighting the Lord's battles when it comes to even a, you know, things like abortion? It's easy to sit back and just say, well, I'm not getting into that, man. People might, people might not like me. It's easy to sit back and say, well, I'm not going to fight against my flesh or my sin. I mean, that's that. What is that, right? That's too hard. I don't, God loves me no matter what, so I'm not going to fight against it. Christianity is the opposite. We are called to strive, to fight, to wage war. It's a, it's a participatory religion, right? We're called to be engaged in it, okay? Now, here's the thing. Here's where things kind of turn, because Christ, he's going to question them twice. So it's almost like this interrogation that Christ is about to put them through. And a two, two questions, right? Now, the first, the first set of questions, the first question is a comfortably objective question. It's, it's, there's not, they don't have a lot of skin in the game. He says this. He says, who do people say I am, right? So it's not like they're, uh, they're, their own belief, their own faith is not going to be exposed. It's an easy question. It's a softball. You know, who do people say that I am? He's saying, hey, guys, look, you guys are out there mixing with the crowd, talking to people, hearing things. Who are people saying that I am? This is an unusual question, though, because it's like this. If, if uh, you know, William, I'll, I'll pick on William, I guess. But if somebody, if William comes up to me and he wants to know what others think about him, he's going to ask exactly that. What do people say about me? What do people think about me? He's not going to say, well, hey, Ryan, who do, people, who do people say I am? You see what I mean? If he was to say, who do people say I am, I would have to say, well, they say you're William. That makes sense? That's a weird question. What do you mean, who do people say you are, right? You're a human being. You're a, you're a, you're a man. You're a, you're a lieutenant colonel. I'm not supposed to say that, you know? But really, you know how it is. We all have our jobs. So, so you describe people. But as far as who people say I am, that's, that's, you're talking about something different. Also, here's the thing. The disciples themselves have wondered this, right? The disciples themselves, it's funny that he asked the disciples, who are people saying that I am? Because the disciples themselves, whenever Christ, I'll give you an example, he heals, or heals, I mean, in a sense he heals, but he calms the waves on the sea. And whenever he calms the waves, the disciples are stunned. And they look around at each other, and it says that they're terrified. And they're asking themselves, who is this man? Who is he? Right? They realize this is something that defies categories that we have. We don't have categories to describe someone who calms the sea, calms the wind, calms the waves. We don't have that. Who is he? So when Christ asks, who do people say that I am? And he's, they start telling him, well, they say, look, they say that, that you're, you're John. They say that you're Elijah. They say that you're the prophets. Now, you can look at this and you can say, wow, man, he is ranked among the greatest figures in the history of Israel. That is spectacular. 
Is it not? Right? And, and they think, here's the thing, when people are saying this about Christ, they probably think that they're doing him a favor. They think that they're offering him something that's worthy. But really, it's offensive, right? It's offensive because it makes Christ ordinary in a sense. He might be extraordinary, but in another sense, he's just part of the whole human fabric of history, and there's nothing really transcendent or different about him, unique about him. So there's, And another thing is, is these, these people right here, these, these people just play a, a preparation role, a preparatory role. You know, Elijah, John the Baptist, the prophets. These guys are preparing the way for the Messiah. So they're saying, oh yeah, you're not the Messiah. The people don't think you're the Messiah. The people think that you're just, you're just here to kind of pave the way for the Messiah. So it's highly offensive in a sense, right? And, and here's, the old, here, here's the thing about this. Okay, So not only, it, it is a denial of his uniqueness. And it's pressing him into pre-existent categories. You know, just these categories that already exist. But here's the thing, right? When you look at our culture today, it's amazing. Because people still do the same thing and probably to an even greater extent today in our culture. Think about this, and I have a list here of 12 different groups, and there's probably 20, so, you know, this is, this is a soft, shallow list. But just go through this list, think about it, okay? So all the people that are trying to do Christ some kind of, some kind of favor, some kind of service by, by saying, oh yeah, he's special in this way or special in that way, but he's not who he is according to the scriptures, right? So let's start with the Jehovah's Witnesses. Oh, he's a spectacular, he's, a, he's an incredible guy, he's the first of... All creation, right? He's not the creator of all things. He's the first thing that was created. So that was, that's, I mean, at least he's, he's that, right? Well, wrong. Because in Colossians, it says that he created, all things were made through him. Hebrews 1 says the same thing. So it's actually, you know what this is? This is an idol. They've made a false Christ. Think about Islam. Islam, they'll say, well, he's, hey, he's, he is a special prophet. He's not the prophet, right? He's not Muhammad, but he's a special prophet. He's not the son of God. But again, it's, they missed the mark. The Jews, now the Jews are actually in a category unto themselves because they don't even give him that. They say he was a liar, a deceiver. The Mormons, now the Mormons, they'll say, oh, he's, hey, he is God. So they don't err on the Jehovah's Witness side, but they say, he's God, right? But the problem is, is there's millions of gods. He's one of millions. And not only that, you can be a God too if only you are good enough, a good enough Mormon. If You also have to be a male, preferably Caucasian. But then if you are all of those things, you can be like Jesus Christ. You can go and save your own planet. So it's a false Christ. You see that? What about liberation theology? Usually don't run into those, but like in, uh, if you go to Mexico or South America, you'll run into that. Liberation theology, he's a political and social revolutionary. New Age people, if you talk to a New Age person, he's one of several gurus, so he's a guru. He's a very special, in a special class, but he, he's, a quality, he's a good teacher. He certainly has some kind of revelation, but he's one of several. Same thing with Hindus. They'd say the same thing. Liberal Christians, they'll say he's good, he's unique, but he's not sinless. There's some things about him. He, you know, he, was, he was a man of his time, so he's ignorant in a lot of ways, you know, but he's good. Gnostics, he's not a real man. You talk to a Christian science person, um, they have that view too, this, this idea that nothing's really material. So Christ is only spiritual. He's not a real man. Your neighbor, who's your neighbor say he is, right? Your neighbor says he's not worth my time, mostly. I'm generalizing, right? But if you go and talk to your neighbor, hey, can I talk to you about Christ? Like, ah, I don't know, man. I don't, depends, you know, like what's going on 
Now, granted, I mean, sometimes there are legitimate things, but you know, really, you know how the apathy is, right? I don't really care about that. Let's talk about something else, man. So uh, Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, you know, these guys, they're like, man, he was such an incredible, the supreme moral teacher, the best moral teacher who's ever walked the face of the earth. Now, let me snip out all those miracles out of my Bible. You see that? But my point is, is this, right? Here's the point. We look at those days, and then we compare them to our day, and we realize nothing's changed. People still want to, they still want, they re, because you can't get away from the fact that Christ is something. Christ is unique. Christ is special. But because of people's sin, they refuse to recognize the exclusivity of Christ, that he is transcendent, that he is different. They refuse to look at the scriptures and take the scriptures for what they say he is. And so you see that same problem today. But here's the thing in verse 29, Christ. See, it's easy for us too. You know, we can, we can all day long say, oh man, those Mormons, what are they thinking? You know, the Jehovah's Witnesses and all these guys, the, 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 the liberals, the atheists. I, made a, I met a Satanist at the mall the other day and he's telling me, he's like, man, Jesus, I don't have any problems with Jesus. I mean, he, he's like, I think, I think he was a great, a great miracle worker, but he was using some kind of black magic, some, some, you know, it's, it's not from God necessarily, he was telling me, you know. And so it's just amazing, right? It's, it's like, okay, but here's the thing. We look at that and we say, oh man, these, these guys are out of their minds. These Satanists, what are they thinking? And that's kind of like the disciples, right? The disciples are like, Jesus, King Herod thinks you're John the Baptist, man. What's he thinking? But Jesus, it's funny because look at what happens. He doesn't even, he's not even concerned about that response. When they say, yeah, they say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. Notice he doesn't even respond. He doesn't say, oh, what are they thinking? They're out of their minds. He says, okay, 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 whatever. But who do you say I am? See the difference? So while we're looking at this and we're like, oh, yeah, the Mormons say this, Jehovah's Witnesses, okay, okay, okay. Forget all of that, though. They're not in here. Although I did invite a Mormon to church today. He messaged me on the Facebook, you know, and he's like, hey, you know, can I, can I share some scripture with you? I said, yeah, meet us at the Presbyterian Church at 3 o'clock. I don't think he's in here. <laughs> Looking around, okay. But here's the thing, right? They're not here, more or less. They can come. But what Christ, here anyways, what Christ is concerned with is, what do you say about him? Who do you say he is? That's what matters, right? That's what counts right here. So he looks at them, and he asks them, okay, that's fine, but who do you say that I am? And in the original, it's, it, the you is emphasized here. It means something like, you whom I have chosen and trained up, in contrast to other men, who do you say I am? I don't care about those other men. Now, we know he does, right? But in, the, in, this, in this context, he's saying, okay, they're not here. What, if, what about you guys? You tell me who I am. Now, and it's really incredible because if you go two scenes back on the boat, remember that's when Christ is ripping into them for not, for not seeing, for having a hardened heart, for having ears but not hearing. And he's saying, I broke the, the loaves for you and you guys still don't get it. Two scenes ago. And so he gives them another shot. He asks them, and this is where the affirmation of faith comes from. And that's why I say, you know, in our liturgy, there's a reason why we have an affirmation or a confession of faith every single week because it's important. We are confessing or affirming what we believe about Christ in the presence of each other, in the presence of angels, in the presence of God. We're telling people, this is who Christ is. This is what I believe. He's asking them to affirm their faith. And what happens? Peter finally gets it. Kind of. In a way, 
right? And he says, Peter says, Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. Boom. You think, right? But that's it. Now, he's got something there. And go to Matthew 16. I want to look at the parallel passage here. Matthew 16. Look what happens here. Matthew gives us a, a, almost a, a, a little fuller picture of what, what happens as far as the dialogue goes here. Okay, look. Look at Matthew 16, and then look at verse, uh, Matthew 16, 16. Matthew 16, 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Now watch this, right? Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but some really, really clever argument did. Right? Some kind of, who is it that told Peter, who is it that finally convinced Peter that Jesus is the Christ? Somebody must have got a hold of this guy, given him some kind of really clever, evidential type of argument, and he finally got it, right? No. What happens is, is the scriptures tell us, you, you didn't get this from yourself, right? My Father, who is in heaven, revealed this to you. My father's the one that opened your eyes. My father's the one that gave this to you. And this harkens back to Matthew, if you go to Matthew 11. Remember this, and we've read this the last two weeks. Might as well make it three. So important. Look at verse chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Who revealed it to them, right? Christ. Well, the father did here. But look what Christ says, verse 26, Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. Isn't that amazing? That's really what this is all about. And, and here's the reason why, though, you can't rest on election, because right after that, Christ says, Come to me. All you who are heavy and laden, uh, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to him. If you're out there and you're like, man, I still don't believe this stuff. What should I do? You know, I'm stuck here in the, I, you know, I don't see. Christ is saying, come to him. Come to Christ, right? But here's, here's what else you have in Matthew 16. This is where you have that passage as far as uh, uh, the church and I think this is important, and Mark doesn't really spend a lot of time on that. We won't either, but it is important to know that when Christ is saying, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Okay, now if you look at um, Peter, when he says that about Peter, that's a stone, and then Petra is a, Petra is feminine, by the way. Peter is masculine. Upon this rock, rock is feminine, and it's plural, and, uh, and it's a large rock, I will build my church. See that? So usually when you look at how people interpret this, um, this is certainly not saying that, it's usually interpreted that upon the confession that Peter makes, Christ is going to build his church. And we actually, Peter himself says that, that Christ is the stone. In First Peter chapter 2, he calls Christ the stone, the cornerstone. Everything's built upon that. So clearly Peter, in other words, this is not arguing for apostolic succession through the person of Peter. At the very least, what you could argue is that this is a certain, to a certain extent, you could say that um, the apostolic witness, not just through one man, but the apostolic witness in Ephesians 2, it talks about how you have apostles and prophets as a foundational, as a foundational piece for the church upon which everything is built. 
So the apostolic witness is here. Okay? But as far as this idea that everything is about Peter this and Peter that, that's not, that's not in the Scripture. Okay? I just wanted to point that out. Now, go back to Mark chapter 8 and look at verse 30. Because this is where, you know, I tell you, everything kind of hinges on this part, this next part, because it's, it's, it is strange. I think it's very strange. If you're just reading through this, and you're excited, man, you're excited for Peter, right? I mean, you're ready to celebrate. You're saying, Peter finally got it. His eyes are finally open. But and then verse 30 you know, it's almost like, okay, let's go tell everybody. Let's go, t- you know, this is, we finally figured it out now. The, the puzzle, the last piece of the puzzle is in place. Let's go tell everybody. Jesus says, no, we're not doing that, guys. It's the opposite. Verse 30, and he warned them. He warned them, right? He's not just like, guys, listen, man, try to keep it under wraps. He's warning them. Guys, do not tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone about me. Don't tell anyone about this. Now, if you think of this, this flies in the face of everything we think of it's regarding the gospel, right? Because you have the Great Commission. At the end of the Gospel of Mark, actually, he's going to tell them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. But here he's saying, no, guys, you're not going out. Now, if you're asking yourself why, that's the right question to ask. Why not? Well, it's because here's the reason, okay? In the context, in the culture that they are living in, what is the Messiah to most people? The Messiah is a political ruler who is going to come in and crush the head of the Roman army, the Roman Empire, and he's going to install Israel as the, as the premier seat in the world power. And they got it all wrong. And so we already, you know, even the Gospel of John, you see this, when they start realizing, there's an inkling there where they realize, oh man, I think this is our guy, right? And they try to force him to be king, and Christ has to back out. So here's what's going on here. The, the, the Messiah in this, in this context is a dangerously fluid term. It means a lot of different things for a lot of different people, and most of the time it's wrong. What it definitely does not mean for anybody, when you were to go in that context, if you were to go in that, just be dropped in that culture, and you start asking people, hey, what do you, what, what do you think the Messiah is? What you will never hear anybody say about the Messiah is that the Messiah is going to be the suffering servant who goes and dies and suffers and, and is, is crucified on a cross, which is the worst and most humiliating kind of death there is. The Messiah is definitely not going to do that. You can say whatever you want to about the Messiah. He's not going to do that. And that's why when you see verse 30, uh, look at verse 31. This is even Peter's notion, right? So Peter, although he says you're the Messiah or you're the Christ, Christ, by the way, is not Jesus' last name. We do need to say that. Because I know I thought that probably when I was growing up, you know. It's not Jesus' first name, Christ's last name. Christ, is, Christ means the anointed one. It means he's been set, set apart. And this is why it's so spectacular, right? The Messiah is the one that they were looking for ever since Genesis 3, whenever Adam sins against God and there's promised one that was going to come and crush the head of the serpent. That's why you have all the sacrifices, all the sacrificial, the whole sacrificial system is pointing to the Messiah. His sacrifice, his person, what he's going to do. And then, of course, with David, you have these, these, these weird places in the prophets where it's talking about how God is going to raise up David. You're like, well, David's dead. I mean, what's going on there? Is he going to come back to life? No, it's talking about the Davidic king that God was going to bring through the Davidic line, but it's in the person of Jesus Christ. But again, the, the idea of suffering, the concept of suffering is not there. It's there in the scriptures, but it's not there in the era, in the, in the context. Um, and so what you're looking at is uh, Peter. Look at Peter. Okay, Verse 31, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. 
And when you hear that, you see that, you're saying, no. Okay, I, even the idea of being rejected would be hard to stomach if you're talking about the Messiah. But now you're talking about killed? How's the, right? How does that? They have no concept of the resurrection. It's easy for us, man. We've lived 2,000 years, and really from the day you're born, you hear about the resurrection. Even in non-Christian circles. I mean, our culture is infiltrated, not necessarily, not in a bad sense, but, you know, the, the, what happens to Christ is, is out there. Everyone knows, more or less, in the Western culture. They might have different spinoffs and variations, but, you know, the idea, the concept is there. But here, this is a foreign, in fact, um, one of the guys said that this is a, not only is it new to them, it's perverse. This concept would be perverse. So Peter hears Jesus saying, hey, the Messiah has to die. And Peter's looking at this like, you've got to be kidding me. You're clearly mistaken about who the Messiah is, Jesus. Because it says that in verse 32, and he was stating the matter plainly. Jesus is stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside. Can you imagine what Peter's telling him? He takes him aside and begins to rebuke him. Right? What do you think he's telling him? Jesus, hey man, I heard you. I heard what you said over here, but I got to tell you something, man. You're wrong. What? But Jesus turns around and seeing his disciples, he rebukes Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. And you can say it another way, in a sense. It's something like, you are not setting your mind on who the Messiah is according to God. You're setting your mind on who the Messiah is according to man. You see that? That's why he's being ripped and rebuked here. But you see why? The disciples, before they can go and tell people who the Messiah is and what the Messiah, they have to learn what that means first. And that's why this goes back to the man who was healed last week. You see that now, right? So, so Peter has some of that eyesight. Christ restores his eyes a little, but he's looking around, and you know what he sees, right? He sees people walking around like trees. He sees trees walking around. He doesn't see people yet. His vision's not clear yet. And that's why it's going to take a while. And I would argue maybe even till the day of Pentecost before his vision actually clears up and he can see things properly and clearly. But that's why he's telling them, do not tell anybody. Because it's almost like when you're learning a new language and you know just enough to be dangerous. That's right. That's exactly what's going on here. They know a little bit, but the, the stuff they know is not, it's not time to go tell anybody yet. So that's what's going on here when he's warning them. Now, here's a few questions. If you're thinking about you know, our own context... Here's the thing, our own lives, our own personalities, everything else. But listen, ask yourself this, who is Christ to you? And really ask yourself this, who is Christ to you? You know? And, and when you're thinking of this, you know, I always think, I always feel like we limit Christ. Christ is, is, is the one who took on flesh. He existed before there was a, a beginning. He is the, the God of the universe through whom everything was made. He hung the stars. He was there in Genesis 1. There was no before when you're talking about the Son of God. There's no before. He always was. But this Son of God takes on flesh. He comes to earth. He lives a perfect life, perfectly sinless in every single word, every deed, every thought. There wasn't a single time when his thoughts deviated from the purpose and mission of God. Not one single thought. It was perfect. And then, of course, he willfully goes to the cross, willingly submits himself to the to the crucifixion, the judgment of God on the cross, not because he had sinned, but because we had sinned, and he's taking on our sins, and he's being crushed in our place. The wrath of God, the judgment of God, is being poured out upon the Son in our place so that we as God's people never have to suffer that. 
And, and, and here's the thing, not only is he the one who does that for us, but of course he doesn't stay dead. He's raised from the dead three days later. And you know what else though? This is what I love. He's the restorer, not just of our persons, not just of our, we saw in Malachi, our homes to a certain extent, but the, the, the very fabric of the cosmos itself, the cosmos is the whole universe, right? Everything comes under the curse because of sin. But Christ came to restore all of that. You see in Hebrew, uh, uh, Romans 8, it's talking about how even the creation itself is in bondage and it groans because it's under the curse of God. So what Christ does is He liberates not just us, He releases not just us, but every single aspect of the entire universe is now freed up by Jesus Christ, by His work, by His person, by what He does. And here's the other thing about this whole passage. Let me ask you another question. Do you confess Christ? Right? Peter confesses Christ. He confesses Christ in the midst of paganism, in the midst of emperor worship. He confesses Christ. And when you look at your own life, and when I look at my life, you know, you, you know the things that I always regret looking in life. But, you know, look back at your life. Every single time, you will always regret the times that you don't confess Christ when you had an opportunity to confess Christ. There's, right? Every single time. And what you will never regret is when you confess Christ. No matter what the backlash is, no matter what the fallout is, no matter what happens, when you confess Christ, am I right? You never regret it. You leave and you walk away and you're like, man, I really got it there, man. They really laid into me for for believing in Christ or whatever it is, right? But you never regret it. Christ in Matthew, he says, blessed are you when you're persecuted and reviled and all these things for my name's sake. You know, it doesn't mean, what it does not mean, when, when, when I'm saying confessing Christ, it doesn't mean you have to go into like a restaurant or, you know, Red Lobster or something and start just preaching Christ and confessing Him and being obnoxious. You know, but it's to say, you know, you know how it is. In our work environments, with our family, with our interactions, with our neighbors, whenever we're put in those positions, Christ puts us there so that we can confess the name. Confess Christ. Verbally. And then oftentimes, and usually this, of course, is just as important with our lives as well. You know, when you're, when, you're, when, you're, when you're at work and you're working hard and you're doing what God has called you to do and you're doing it diligently and responsibly, that's confessing Christ. You know? Especially, and that's why it's important. That's why they go together, though. Because if you're not telling anybody about Christ, if you're not saying any, you know, if people don't know you're a Christian but you're a good worker, they're like, man, this guy, he's probably an atheist or something, but man, he's a good worker. We want them to know, you know, I'm a Christian. This is why I have this work ethic. This is why I do what I do. But that's the thing. So there's many ways to confess Christ, but it is important. Now, here's the thing. You might be looking at this and you're saying, yeah, but how do I, how do I know who the Christ is? Right? All these different groups out there, all these different things. You know what the scriptures show? John 20, verse 31 says, These things have been written that we may know that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So what's it telling us? Search the scriptures. All of those groups that I just mentioned, I promise you, every single one of them, what they do with the Scriptures, they either add to the Scriptures or they'll find some quote-unquote flaw with the Scripture. Every single group. But search the Scriptures. The Scriptures are infallible. They come from God. They're written by God. They're God-breathed. They're right here. And as we're reading, ask God to open your eyes, right? Illuminate. God, give me illumination. I can't understand these things without you. And then lastly... Going back to Peter's confession. Now, here's the cool thing about confessing, right? The cool thing is this. 
What Jesus tells Peter, right after he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, Jesus tells him, what does Jesus tell him? Remember what he tells him? What's the first word he tells him? Blessed are you. Blessed are you. That is That harkens back to the to the, to, the, to the threefold blessing, the ironic blessing in Numbers, when God puts His name upon His people. The blessing of God is upon His people. The blessing of God is upon you. As God's people, as people who confess the name, God's blessing is upon you. And this is so cool because when you read in the Psalms, for instance, in the Psalms, you know some of the laments in the Psalms, some of those Psalms, it's like this. They're, they're looking around and they're like, man, God, I can't figure this out, God. All these unbelievers have this and have that. They got they have, you know, they live to be 90. They they live to see their great 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 grandkids. They have a lot of wealth. They have everything they need. They have good health. They have all of this stuff. And here I am as one of your people, your servants, as I'm I'm a, you know, a a son or a daughter of the the most high and and I'm looking at my life and I'm like, "Man, God, what's going on here?" But then you read those Psalms and it's like, "Man, they don't they don't they're not blessed." They might have material blessings, sure. They might have material things, but they're not blessed. And as we saw in the Heidelberg Catechism today, and as we see in Scripture, right? Whatever happens in your life, you can have afflictions. You can have, you can have illnesses. You can, you, can, you can be impoverished. You can lose your job. All these things. And we know that God in His sovereignty is using these things to work out greater glory for Himself and greater good for you in a sanctification process. So what that means is no matter what happens in life, if you're in Christ, you're blessed. You're blessed by God. See that? Isn't that amazing? I mean, here's Peter, right? And if, you, if you're doubting me on this, ask yourself, how's Peter's life going to turn out? What's going to happen to him? Well, he'll be dead within, I don't know, 15 years. How is he going to die? He's going to be persecuted big time until then. How is he going to die? Well, they're going to turn him upside down and crucify him. That doesn't seem like he's blessed. He's blessed, right? Because where is he now? Where is he the moment he dies? And in fact, where is Christ? This is a better way to put it. Where is Christ when Peter's going through that? He's with him. See that? So whatever you're going through, you're blessed, man. You know? Isn't that everything? That's why it's worth confessing the name, by the way. That's why it's worth following Christ, because the triune God of the universe is for you. Who can be against you? Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and we do praise you that you have opened our eyes. Lord, we are, of all people, most... um, most to be humble. Lord, we look at these other groups and we can we can scoff and kind of joke, but Lord, we know that apart from your grace, that was us, Lord. We were heathens and pagans and idolaters worshiping false Christ and the neighbor that doesn't care about Christ. And Lord, that was us. And so, Father, we come before you and we, we praise you that you've opened our eyes, Lord, that you've given us eyes to see. And Lord, we pray for those in our midst whose eyes have not been opened, that you would have mercy on them, that you would open their eyes. Lord, we know that this is not about righteousness or, or uh, how good or, or mighty somebody is, but, but Lord, that it's, it's, it's your grace and it's your mercy. And Lord, we know that 
that the people who are lost in our midst, Lord, that, that you are God mighty enough to save them. We are living examples of that, testimonies of your grace, of your sovereign grace. So please open their eyes. Lord, help us as your people to go forth with your blessing, Lord. We know that um, in life it seems so often we, it's easy to get down, it's easy to forget that we are blessed. But Lord, we thank you, O oh God, that because of this confession, because of Christ, Lord, we know that the gates of, of Hades will not prevail and that you've given us this power to go forth and crush any demon or any pagan system or any kind of idolatrous worship out there, Lord, that you've given us the power that he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. Give us grace to believe that, Lord, to be on the offensive, not cower down and retreat and run and hide and apologize and be afraid of the world. Lord, give us grace to go forth with the mighty name of Christ and overcome it. Lord, bring down the strongholds in our life, in this city, this wicked state. Please, O oh God. Lord, we know that, that your gospel is, is Lord, the, the power in your gospel is, our, our minds could not even grasp the power in that. But, Lord, we want to. We want to grasp more of it. So give us grace, O oh Lord. Open our eyes more and more to who Christ is. And, Lord, wherever our vision is blurry, wherever we have a false notion of the Messiah, Please give us grace to always be reforming back to Scripture. Clarify our vision, O oh God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, please go ahead.